You're listening to For the Record, a registrar podcast sponsored by ACRO. I'm Elena Silva, Director of Pre-K-12 Education Policy at New America, and this is the Carnegie Unit. Hello, welcome to For the Record. I'm your host, Doug McKenna. We have a really interesting episode today. I'm pleased to welcome Elena Silva, Director of Pre-K through 12 Education Policy at New America and lead author of the Carnegie Foundation's paper, The Carnegie Unit, a Century-Old Standard in a Changing Education Landscape. Elena, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today about the Carnegie Unit. And this is, uh, let's go to that right away. Is it Carnegie or Carnegie? What do you say? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. Um, Andrew Carnegie, for which the foundation, uh, the corporation, and uh, at least a dozen or so other institutions are named, immigrated to Pittsburgh from Scotland as a boy. So the Scottish pronunciation is Carnegie, uh, but I find that folks more often say Carnegie. Uh, I use it interchangeably. You'll hear me say it both ways. Fantastic. That's the same way that I use data as both a singular and a plural noun. So it goes back and forth. So Elena, thank you for joining us. Tell us a little bit about yourself. You spent some time with the Carnegie Foundation, but you're not there now. So give us a little bit of background for your experience and what you're doing now and what you did then. Sure. Um, I'm now the director of the pre-K-12 education program at New America, which is a D.C.-based think tank. Uh, Before that, I spent three years at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, where I spent a good chunk of my time studying the origins and the utility of the Carnegie unit, um, which is a subject that keeps coming up. Uh, So I'm happy to be here to talk with you about it today. Great. Thank you so much. You say that it keeps coming up and we're going to talk about some of the framework for why that is and in which contexts. But let's talk a little bit about the origins of the Carnegie unit first. Tell us a little bit about how it came to be. What's the story there? Sure. It's, uh, I think if you skip back to the creation of the Carnegie unit, it's an interesting story that is oddly tied up in Andrew Carnegie's desire to create a, a pension system for college professors. So this is the turn of the 20th century. And at this point, um, he's retired and has been sitting, he's now sitting on a lot of money. He was at the time the world's richest man and had throughout his life uh, a great deal of respect an admiration for educational institutions and educators. Um, You'll note that he also funded a national library movement. So there are more than a thousand or so Carnegie libraries across the country. He believed in education and he believed that in particular college professors weren't being paid well enough and wanted to support the development of a pension system to support them. So to do this, he created the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Um, He gave $10 million to the foundation's trustees to finance this pension system. So that's a lot of money, $10 million back then in particular. But it also 
isn't enough, of course, to cover everyone who was seeing themselves as a college professor in every institution that was saying that it was a college. Right. Back then, the, the, there's a distinction, right, between the high school and higher education. It's not very clear at this time. There's huge variation in how schools and colleges are functioning then, what they're asking of their faculty and staff, what they require for admissions. So you can imagine that when a pension system a valuable pension system is rolled out. Everyone wants to be a part of it. Which right. makes- Everyone's like, hey, that's us. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like I want in. Um, so that begs the question of, well, which institutions are eligible? And that's something that the the trustees had to start to grapple with. Uh, what makes a college a college? What Some colleges, for example, then only required that students be a certain age, uh, some of them 14, 15 years old, that you're able to read and write English and that you can pass a pretty basic arithmetic test. Is that a college? So the the Carnegie trustees took this question um, really seriously and they declared that to be ranked as a college, to be eligible then for the pension system, an institution had to be had at least at least six full-time professors it had to have a course of four years in liberal arts and sciences, and that it could only admit students who had completed four years of high school preparation or, or the equivalent of that. And so this set the bar. And it set the bar then for high school preparation into college and then also for standards for American higher education, faculty, coursework, admissions. And an overarching need to measure all of these standards is this central accounting feature, which we call the Carnegie Unit, also known as the credit hour, although there is some distinction there that we can talk about as well. Yeah, I definitely want to get into the difference between what the Carnegie Unit is and how it's addressed at, at the high school level, and then how the credit hour, how it affects higher education. One of the reasons that we're talking today is that the Carnegie Unit turned 100 years old a couple of years ago. When was yeah 2015? So five years ago. Holy moly, it's fast. And so as higher education continues to develop and continues to innovate, there's some tension between what the Carnegie Unit established and ways that institutions are trying to offer different modular offerings, different delivery modes, et cetera. And it really has hinged on some financial aid implications with the reliance on the Carnegie unit and or the credit hour as established. But I want to first just go through the college entrance requirements and how they have to be designated in terms of units. I'm reading from the paper that you wrote. Designated in terms of units, a unit being a course of five periods weekly throughout an academic year of the preparatory school. And then 14 such units constituted the minimum amount of preparation for students heading for college. And so when you say that this establishment of the unit really standardized a lot of things, high schools in particular continue to use this standard and entrance to college continues to use that standard. Can you talk a little bit more about how radical of an idea this was at the time and sort of the seismic shift that occurred as a result of the publication of this standard or the socialization of this standard? Sure. It, it, was a, it was a big change. It was a time of uh, tremendous growth in both the uh, number of 
students attending high schools and colleges. Um, there was tremendous growth there. And there was just so the institutions themselves just started to uh, expand. So the number of institutions grew significantly. And then this distinction between the high school and the college started to emerge. The The Carnegie unit was an efficiency tool in, in many ways. And so I think earlier I'd called it an accounting tool. It's a metric and it, it is, it is um, numerical, of course, in nature. It's a way then that you see these organizations expand because they're able to. They have not only this standard, um, but they're using it across their systems. So you see the Carnegie unit's influence in everything from from high school schedules, how schedules are arranged in order to count for credits, graduation requirements, again, to count uh, those requirements so you can add them up and show show something to these colleges that are looking at this for admissions. Um, At the university, on the university side, university faculty workloads. It starts to determine how universities are, what they're requiring of faculty and how they're measuring faculty workloads. And then student eligibility for financial, federal financial aid, which is something you mentioned, another huge big impact um, of the Carnegie unit where, again, you're, you're counting, you're only um, enabling financial aid to be awarded, just like you're only enabling certain students to be admitted. You're only enabling it to be awarded if if they've reached a certain threshold. So if you are gaining this a certain number of Carnegie units or credit hours. So it has an enormous impact on um, higher education and on high school, in many ways enabled the expansion of these institutions and this landscape, because it was a common metric across everything. Thank you. Let's parse out a little bit the difference between the Carnegie unit at the high school level and the credit hour at the post-secondary college or university level. I find it interesting that they they both share the number 120 is one of those key linkages where the individual units added up equal at the high school level equal 120 hours And then at the university level, a baccalaureate degree is awarded with no fewer than 120 credits. Can you give a little bit of lines of demarcation between what's considered the Carnegie unit for high school versus the credit hour at the university level? Sure. So for for both, uh, I would say it's, you know, the term the credit hour and the reason why we use that term is when someone's asking Uh, how many graduation credits do you need or how many credits do you need to graduate, whether you're talking about graduating from high school or you're talking about graduating from from college. Underneath that, what lies underneath that is this credit hour and and people know it. And so you start to calculate in your head, how how long is it going to take me to accumulate and earn these credits in order to be able to graduate. So on, in, it's functioning very similarly for, for both institutions. It is numerically, I mean, there, there are different ways it's counted in high school and in colleges. It's not actually as standard as, as you might think uh, at the high school level, just because we have very different states have very different requirements. And so there, sure. if you look across the graduation, high school graduation requirements um, across states, you'll see some considerable variation. So you won't always see everything adding up to 100 120 hours, for example. But specifically, uh, Carnegie Unit is 120 hours. The definition of it technically is that it's 120 hours of instruction that is broken down into an hour a day and then five days a week and then 24 weeks. That's how it's defined initially. And that's what that's one of the things that's really held. Again, there's some variation to that. Um, and whether it's, it has to be five days a week, whether it's just one hour a day, or in some cases, you'll see courses that are longer than just an hour a day. So there's, there's different ways 
um, that you can arrange the time, but it's essentially a, a metric to grant credit in both places. And it's, it's a measure of time, instructional time. So it's pretty precise and pretty rigid. There again is variation in the number. It's not always adding up to 120, although that was the, originally the construct. Got it. And you've said a number of times that it is a metric that measures instructional time or seat time for a student. It does not measure mastery of a subject or learning outcomes. And so one of the complaints from people is that even with 120 hours or even with 120 credits, there's no guarantee that the student has learned anything, right? That's right. Absolutely. It's, um, it was never conceived of as a measure of quality or competency. It was conceived of as a measure of time. And that's exactly the way it still functions, except that we now expect it to be more than that. And so we, we do. We do rely on it. We lean on it, thinking that it's telling us something that it's in fact not. Right. And in fact, registrars in particular, as we are the keepers of the student record, I think we rely heavily on the transcript and the number of credits earned in order to validate that the student has achieved a particular level of learning. And I think that's combined only with a minimum two-point GPA as the two hard and fast things. Those are really the only two pieces of data that I have been told or I have experienced in my registrar's life that there are no exceptions to. Like We will not grant a baccalaureate degree with a student who has not earned a minimum of 120 credits and has not achieved a minimum of a two-point GPA. Anything else is basically institutional policy that we can uh, negotiate. But those two minimum standards I also believe are the outcome of the Carnegie unit's influence here. So I agree that it's never been the intention of it, but I do think also that people confuse it regularly where they're like, oh, you spent this much time, you should know these things. Can you talk a little bit about the faculty's either input or feedback or their role in, I guess, seems a silly question, do the faculty have a role in assessing a student's learning? Well, yes, that's it. <laughs> it's, no, it, it seems like an obvious question or it should have an obvious answer, but it's, it's, um, it's not that simple. And one of the, I'm glad you brought up faculty because a big element of the Carnegie unit is that it's used now to measure, well, it has been to, to measure, not just, time learning, but contact hours specifically. I mean, that's part of the definition is that it's it's specifying the number of contact hours that a student should be spending in class and then per week in a given semester, and then it grants credit based on that. And so there's two points in that that are pretty important. One is contact hours. And so if you think about right now and the current circumstance of folks learning online and us all being at a distance and trying to figure out how to learn at a distance and that this has been happening for some decades, we've been moving towards an online distance learning world. This notion of contact hours, like a student having being in contact, direct contact with a fa- with faculty is, is interesting and something that the Carnegie unit, of course, at its creation could never have imagined. And then the other piece that's interesting about this, this in, it's this in-class piece as well. It's the contact hours a student spends in class. And what does it mean to be in class? Are you physically present in a classroom? Do you have to be on campus? You know, those are two, they're, they're important questions right now. Um, and that, and they may help redefine 
how we use the Carnegie unit. To your point about uh, what is the role of the faculty in assessing student learning, the, the role, the faculty is everything in assessing student learning. But I think across the board, what you'd see, and we, we talk to faculty, we talk to registrars as well, and folks in administrative positions. But when you talk to faculty, and this is true at the high school level too, there, are, there is a, a tremendous variation in how faculty assess and how they grade. And that is part of the problem and part of why we keep leaning back into the Carnegie unit because it's quite simple, because it's numerical, because it's an accounting measure. And so we can all agree that it's not a way to measure learning, but we can't seem to agree on a best way that we should stand on it in a standard way, measure and assess learning. Right. That's a great point. I think the faculty also will be very happy to hear you say that they're everything. In that. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of things that you just said that are really interesting that I want to come back to are, how do we get to a better, or is it even a desired outcome to get to a more standardized assessment of learning? Is it more important to get to a more standardized assessment of learning? It, it is because part of the criticisms that we have about what the Carnegie unit has done or, or the ways in which it's restricting the important criticisms that are true of it right now in today's world are that one for one, it doesn't enable the transfer of credits. So you see students like trying to move from one institution to another and they're not able to do that because there's no, there's no standard. There's they have to use Carnegie units in this place, in this case. A, a ridiculous number of credits are left on the table as part of transfer. They're lost in transfer. And that's one of the serious problems with higher education, student mobility, and time to degree, and uh, retention, completion, persistence measures. All of that uh, hinges, I think, on an underlying question of the transferability of credits between institutions. So that's a great point. Sorry to interrupt. Right, so there's a question of whether the Carnegie unit, it, it may, it's restrictive in that way. But it, without, if we didn't have the Carnegie unit, for example, or if we didn't use the Carnegie unit in that way, I think there are a lot of different, a lot of ways around that so that we would be able to transfer credits and still have a Carnegie unit. But if we didn't have a Carnegie unit, and we didn't have a standard way of measuring or assessing learning, how would that transfer necessarily work? So when, when folks talk about competency-based models, of which there are many now, increasing um, variety of them, some that seem very promising and others not necessarily, you, there's that same question. How does one measure competency? Does your, you know, you may measure the competency of a student differently than I. Shouldn't there be um, a standard way, a, a rubric, standards just in general, to assert what it means for a student to have competency in whatever skill or, or whatever um, uh, subject area. And there's been a lot of movement towards this. So it's not to say that no one's doing, folks are doing a lot on this. They're trying to figure this out, but it's really right. very difficult. And that's, again, why decades after decades, folks are like, pushing they, they push they lean back into the into the Carnegie unit at, to, at the administrative level at the same time that we're criticizing it for being just what it is which is just just an accounting measure <laughs> it it's both a buttress and an obstacle absolutely it's, it's, it just depends on which part of the circle you're in <laughs> But I think, I mean, I think that's right. I, although I, and I will say when we talk to administrative folks and registrars, I mean, some of, they, they were more than anyone like, well, what would we do without it? You know, like how, how would we, 
how would we count this up without it? Oh, Somebody right. would yeah. give us some other standard measure. So they, there was a real call for a standard measure. And at the time when we were doing this research, so you know, I was working for the Carnegie Foundation at the time. Um, uh, we we were trying to understand, like, well, what would this other standard single single other standard measure be? Not not a variety of them, not lots of them. But you know, when we talked to administrative folks who were trying to run um, an efficient organization, you know, they were very much adamant that there needed to be some sort of standard unit, and if not the Carnegie unit, what would it be? Exactly, exactly. That's we a, didn't have an answer. <laughs> I, well, that's uh, it. Leaves the door open for someone to come in, swoop in with a grand solution at some point in the future. Some of the good ideas that that came up that we didn't include in that report, um, again, that was you know put out and endorsed by the Carnegie Foundation. So that was not just those those of us that that worked on it. Some good ide- some ideas that came up that we weren't really able to continue on with very much, but I think are very much worth considering. They were consi- worth considering then five years ago and, and even more so now that our world continues into this distance learning remote circumstance. One is, can you, could we conceive of an asynchronous Carnegie unit? You know, and, and so you're, you're pushing back on this the in contact, direct contact with faculty. Um, that's one way of just changing how we think about the Carnegie unit and aligning it with the technological advancements that we've seen and that we continue to see. It is, you know, it was created uh, 120 years ago or almost. So it's, you know, it, it could not possibly reflect the, the world we live in now. And what we've learned about how learning happens and how learning can happen with different learning technologies. Um, I would still back into the fact that that the human element of learning is should be the priority um, and that we need to be careful with a lot of technologies. Uh, we, we're currently in a circumstance where we have a big push to deregulate a lot of what's happening in higher education and, and sort of right. open everything up and say, hey, let's let's just every online, you can do whatever you want for profit. And that that I think is a is a huge risk. Uh, my colleagues that, that work more closely on that in higher education at New America can say much more on that and have written and talked about it. Amy Lightning wrote Cracking the Credit Hour before we put out our Carnegie piece, which lays out a lot of the real um, problems with the with the uh, Carnegie unit or the Credit Hour. But also, I think now would certainly say that there's that's not a reason to just blow it open and sure. just sort of see what happens. Right. You mentioned a couple of things there also that I want to follow up with. One of the primary things about the Carnegie unit is that it drives the academic calendar. In turn, I believe that's because the financial aid regulations are based on the credit hour, time and seat, number of credits uh, students enrolled in per semester or per term. I wonder, as we move to inching closer to an asynchronous modality more frequently or more broadly, what are your thoughts on the standard academic calendar what can or should happen with the academic calendar structure as we know it? And then how might a change in the Carnegie unit affect future academic calendars? Sure. So I, I, I would say this is for both high schools, uh, K-12 in general, and higher education, that we're seeing more and more interest and demand for change to what we mean when we say the school year or, you know, the academic year. 
um, which is going to push and should push for changes to some of these federal these requirements. So you have right now federal on the for the higher ed side, obviously um, federal financial aid requirements for instructional time and. And that includes attendance, student attendance, and it includes the length of the academic year. And so then from there, you have to define um, what does that mean in the academic year, because the students can't receive fi federal financial aid for, for example, prior learning, and they can't receive fi federal financial aid if they're not fitting into that box. And so very Carnegie unit-like, you know, it's a box <laughs> designed that way. It is demanding that the, the academic year, the scheduling um, look a certain way, that it follow a certain calendar. Um, I, I don't see any reason why that wouldn't change. It's already changing. People are already pushing not just from the distance online, um, anywhere learning to the, uh, and any time in the day, but to the, um, the year-long schooling movement in K-12 to different ways of organizing uh, semesters and quarters and academic years writ large in higher education. The way that you design a course or a class is going to change. It's already changing. So I don't, I, I see nothing but change in, in that regard. I don't think that necessarily means you're not measuring time. It just means you're, you're seeing time in a very different way and you're being, you're more open to the fact that, that time and learning are happening in different places at different times and we can still, we could still measure it. We should be open to different ways of using time and tracking time, but there is this sense of if learning has to happen, if if there is a in in K twelve, it's called the you know teacher of record, and so the teacher that's responsible at this point where there's there's accountability there, and that, the same would be true for faculty in higher ed, where you're overseeing the student and you're responsible for the student's learning or monitoring the student's learning. Um, how much contact do you need to be in with the student? What does that look like? So the oversight and the monitoring by both the institution and then the actual faculty member or teacher, it does matter. I mean, we do need to we do need to to think about that uh, carefully, so that it's it's not just an everywhere, anytime, anyone situation. Um, how do you determine what interactions with faculty? Are best for learning right now in in law. You know, it's it's on a, it's I think regular and sub substantive basis that you're having right. to interact with faculty. So what does that mean? I mean, it's you know you start to qualify what these terms mean in in a new world where you know we do need to be open to different formats and different modalities of learning. I love it. I think we'll stop there for today. You've given me a lot to chew on and a lot to think about. Elena, I appreciate your time so much. And thank you for sharing your thoughts and your expertise with this. Are there any closing thoughts that you want to give about the Carnegie unit in particular for registrars? For registrars. The great <laughs> registrars. The registrars were some of my favorite folks to talk to. But I, I think in part that's because, you know, I was talking about the Carnegie unit and, and they understood it in a way 
that in a way that affected their everyday jobs because as you said they were really <laughs> having to, they were having to work with it you know they they weren't necessarily yeah. restricted by it or you know sort of looking at it theoretically they just were like this is just it's a little bit like calculating funds or something they were just using it working with it every day so i appreciate those conversations but i will say you know the 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 purpose of higher education the purpose of k12 is is for student learning and so, you know, in that regard, you know, registrars play a huge role administratively in making sure that these organizations function. And without them, we wouldn't have organizations that could function well. And then we couldn't provide learning to students. But, you know, we also need to make sure that we're, we're carefully considering what it looks like to learn. And the actual act of, of learning is an exchange between humans and it is requires a lot of expertise and it requires a lot of attention to both assessment and instruction and there is a lot that becomes bigger than just counting counting hours so i respect and understand the criticisms of of the carnegie unit and and to say what you said before you know or to reiterate your point it's both um, bolstering this in, these institutions it's enabling these institutions to really be large and and sprawling and to have variation because it's it is a foundational measure it's it is a measure of ju- of, of time that is distinct from a measure of learning I, I'm, yeah, its I'm simplicity sort of- really makes it broadly applicable and I think that that is one of the key points that you made in the paper and that just from my understanding of it is that it's simple, it's understandable, it's applicable in a variety of situations. And because of that, it's like a Lego building block. It, it can be used in many different ways to enable many different types of exchanges and coordination and operational efficiencies. And so it's definitely been an, a critical part of the development of K-12 and higher ed over the last hundred years. And so it'll be interesting to see how it is either molded and shaped by the changes that are happening in the world today, or whether we find a new simple and applicable metric that will carry us through the next hundred years. Right. No, you, you said that better than I. Um, it's, uh, it was designed for consistency, you know, not, not change. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to try hard <laughs> to the extent that it can try it all uh, <laughs> to hold on. It's not going to go anywhere easily. It is resistant to change, that's for sure. In our early conversations, when, when everybody was disturbed that we hadn't put something out that said we were going to kill the Carnegie Hour and, <laughs> and start over, because folks thought that. They were like, oh, the Carnegie Foundation is going to come out with something, and it's going to say that we're going to kill the Carnegie Unit, and they're going to create something new. And so they were very distressed when we didn't say that. So I can't remember who it was at, at this point. Somebody that we worked with on our advisory group made the analogy that it was you know, a little bit like saying you're going to burn it down, like burn down the foundation or something. It was, And it was interesting because it was a great way of thinking about it and similar to what you were just saying where the notion that you that we want to change that makes sense like we're most of us in education believe in innovation and we believe in moving forward but you also have to we have to be careful and and acknowledge the risk of moving forward too quickly and just allowing the foundation to crumble because it's it's not clear what all this innovation would stand upon if we did that Thanks for listening. I hope you found this as interesting as I do. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to the mailing list from the ACRO website and share it with a friend or colleague. 
Thank you again to Elena Silva for taking the time to share her expertise on the Carnegie unit. Until next time, I'm Doug McKenna, and this is For the Record. Thank you.